I'm James Crichton, and this is Actors on Process. Today is Monday, October 19th, 2020, and my guest today is John Andrew Morrison. I first saw John Andrew in a strange loop at Playwrights Horizons in the first row. His performance, as well as those of his castmates and the production in general, completely blew me away. It was one of those unforgettable nights in the theater. But there was something about his performance, as mom in particular, that I could not shake. And I continue to think about it to this day. His scenes with Larry Owens remain some of my favorite moments from this absolutely exemplary musical. A few months ago, I tuned into Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company's virtual progressive party, and I was reminded of John Andrews' performance all over again, since they had invited him to perform one of my favorite songs, periodically, during that evening's broadcast. Stay tuned to hear more about the developmental process of A Strange Loop, John Andrews' almost career as a lawyer, his life of balancing theater and corporate gigs, and the advice that allowed him to pause, reflect, and ultimately make a vital change in his theater-making career. Before you listen to today's episode, please consider following me on Instagram. Find me at ActorsOnProcess and hit me with that follow. And then, if you're feeling generous, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Without any further ado, here's John Andrew Morrison. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about who you were as a kid, where you grew up, that kind of thing. You mean from the three pages of, this is the first question in the three pages of questions that you sent me. I have to be thorough. Audience, he is extremely thorough. I'm just going to tell you. Uh, also, I've prepared no answers. So, <laughs> um, so I grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, and... Uh, I was, you know, a pretty, pretty rambunctious kid and um, full of energy. And um, in terms of theater, in Jamaica, there is a thing called the National Pantomime. Every Christmas, there's this big pantomime that happens. And I used to love it so much as a kid. And like, you would go, you, you, you would take your really small kid to see it. It was like stories about like things that were in the news things that were happening in the country during that time and and folk songs and and very lively christmas celebration and i always just found it kind of magical i remember when i was very young and i'd be watching theater you'd see someone like leave from one side of the stage and then i'd see them come on from the other side of the stage and i'd be like how did they do that <laughs> So, so watching it as a small child, it was always magical. Like it was always just like, how are they, how are they doing that? How is that happening? And um, I used to spend almost every summer uh, in New York. So school would end and I would 
go up to my Aunt Claudia's in Elmhurst, Queens, and my sister is 10 years older, and I had cousins who were 10 years older than me. And, um, and Broadway at that time in New York was very different. Like, you could get these twofers, and, um, like, going to see a Broadway show wasn't... Um, a prohibitive thing so we would go to shows all the time I mean I saw like the original company of Annie I'm so aged myself oh my gosh I, I, I remember seeing I remember waking up during the whiz um, I was like maybe four years old and um, I would you know I fell asleep but I woke up at the end when like the flying monkeys came on and um remember all the way to the end or kind of like there were these like flashes of things um about that show but i saw like the tap dance kid and annie and 42nd street and all kinds of shows and now uh, when i was about 12 i remember my mom wanted to go and see dream girls and i was like i don't want to see dream girls i don't want to see the show and she dragged me to go and see it and it blew my mind absolutely blew my mind and 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 when i saw it by that time i think jennifer jennifer holiday had left but the show was a huge hit like i am telling you was on the radio and huge huge hit and it was roz ryan who was playing effie at the time and she sang the 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 first act closer and something i'd never seen this happen ever since but the audience went bananas and they started to shout encore curtain came down the curtain split she came out to the front of the stage and she said maestro please and he struck up the song and she sang the entire song again and the whole audience just was like oh my god like just cuckoo bananas um, in the theater. And then she looked at the audience and said, ladies and gentlemen, we must take our intermission, but thank you ever so much. And the curtain parted and she went in and I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> it was amazing. Oh and so gosh. from the time I was 12, I was like, oh, this, this is it. Like someone can do that and make this many people like lose their mind. I'm in. I'm in. Oh my gosh, I've I've never seen anything like that happen. Never, never, never. Uh, uh, th that was the. Uh, it was bananas. It was amazing. I mean, talk about exciting. But you also got to see so many incredible things as a kid. I wasn't seeing shows as a kid. I don't. I I actually was just yelling at my mom about this. Like I was thinking about my first theater experience, and I was old like I don't think we used to, and we lived so close we really didn't go in that much so I'm really like you had a quite a an amazing time yeah, I mean like and we saw like we saw a lot because it was it in a way it was something to do mm. right like my aunt Claudia was like get these kids out of my house they're like because um, the summer, it was all of these cousins and we would come up and other cousins would come up. I mean, we would like flood her little house in Elmhurst, Queens. So she was just happy to get like people out of the house. Like go, here are some twofers, go see something. 
go do something with yourself. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was quite amazing. I was very small. Um, when, the, when the first blackout happened in the 70s, I was like three years old. I remember we were all huddled up in her apartment blackout happened and so you know the graffiti on the trains and all of that stuff very vivid wow well what then sort of led you to you knew like I mean dream girls was an eye-opening experience for you what how did you know like I'm gonna study this for real for real in college well you know I mean oh my poor parents like I I I loved it, but it was not something that was really encouraged in my house. Like we could go see it and that was fine. And, um, and you know, we can go and enjoy it. But th- it, wasn't, it wasn't something that they were like, oh yeah, sure, go ahead and, and pursue it. I, I was allowed to take guitar lessons. I do not play guitar, no. <laughs> but I took lessons for many years. Um, but the little dots on the page, I got bored. (laughs) Um, so that was, that was what they kind of, kind of allowed. And, um, I remember in high school, we didn't have like a drama program, but, uh, Jamaica uses the, the English system of education. So in fifth form, this fella came to our school, um, my good friend, Martin Stevenson. And um, his family was involved with this organization called Jamaica Musical Theater Company. And um, he, he said, hey, we're doing a production of Grease and we need stagehands. Um, you want to come do it? And so I asked my parents and they were like, we don't want to have to drive you to another thing. And um, at the time, Martin had like gotten... He, he, he had just got his um, driver's license. So Mark was like, no, I'll pick him up and I'll, and I'll bring him home. And so I ended up doing stage management for their production of Grease. And that was where I met um, my very good friend, Jody Holon, who is my very good friend to this day. And then the next year they were doing The Wizard of Oz and um, auditions were coming up. And I asked my dad, I don't remember, my, by that time, my sister was a college student in New York. And my mom had come up to New York. So it was just me and my dad in the house. And um, the auditions had come up for Wizard of Oz. And I asked him if I could go and he said no. And I was devastated. And I remember I couldn't sleep. Like the auditions were like in two days. And I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't sleep. I don't know where this boldness came from, but I went and I woke him up at two o'clock in the morning, and I was like, "Please, I really want to do this. I really want to do this." And I think just so he could go back to sleep, he was like, "Fine, just go." And you know, always the thing was, you know, my mom and dad were like, "Do I have to drive you to another thing?" And luckily, um, you know, Martin Stevenson and his wonderful family, who are so involved with with that organization, they dropped me to rehearsals and picked me up, and I went with them, and and it ended up being so much fun. And so I knew that it was something that I could do, and I had a talent for, but going to to college i was intended my intention uh was to study law 
never made it to a law class. Wow. Never made it to a single one. Not a single one. Not a single one. When, um, when you entered, so you went to Brandeis, right? Yes. Yeah, so for undergrad, I went to Brandeis. And did you enter with the intention that you were pursuing a law degree or were you entering? No, I, I, my intention was I was going to be pre-law. There's not, Brandeis doesn't have a, a, a law school, but they have a great pre-law program and they have a good pre-med program. And so my intention was that I was going to go and be a pre-law major and study all of these things. And I remember it was like the orientation week. So it was just the freshmen on campus and they had a sign up for the fall musical, the third department fall musical, which was working. And for some reason I found this sign up, right? Like the campus is not necessarily a small campus. And you know, on, on the big sign up board that they had for the freshmen, of course I found the the theater thing and i and i signed up like thinking oh yeah go and um i at the time i I didn't have a headshot i didn't have a book i didn't have i don't even remember what i sang i like i just went in there i was kind of like bold and fearless i didn't know that i had to be intimidated or it was something to be intimidated about um so i just went in and and I got cast in the show. So I got cast in the fall musical. And there was a, the head of the undergraduate department, his wife was a voice teacher and she heard me sing outside the audition room. And when I stepped out, she said, hey, I can teach you to sing. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like so much of it was just like, I just kind of said yes, and what there, there, when I was young, there was really no intention about the whole thing. It just kind of unfolded. And, um, and then I got cast in Into the Woods that year, and I got cast in Guys and Dolls that year. Um, I did so much theater, I almost failed out of Brandeis the first year. Um, because there were all of these like first year classes and requirements that you had to do. And, I was just spending all of my time in the theater and so much so that the head of the undergraduate department like went and batted for me with them and went, we'll give him a semester off. We won't let him do any theater so he can catch up on his work. But yeah, I almost failed out my first year because I spent too much time in the theater department. Well, I mean, it's very clear that you had like a intense hunger like for this, like it, it just keeps following you. I, yeah, I mean, it. Yeah, it's been this weird thing with my career. It, it, it almost feels like theater or performing is inevitable in my life because the amount of times I've like thrown up obstacles and like somehow they've just kind of like been knocked down just over and over and over again, you know, um, countless times. Uh, theater has just said, no, no, you, you should do this. We want you here, so do this, you know? And um, so my second year, my sophomore year, I went from almost failing out to being on the Dean's list because my whole second year, all I took was theater classes and I was like an A plus student the whole second year. And I remember like my like academic advisor was like, this is so impressive, what a turnaround. I'm like, well, I'm interested in this. 
know what I mean? Like, I care about this. Never went to a law class. Never, like, just, just was like, oh, no, there's this thing in this building, and I, I'm going to go do that. And so that whole second year was kind of magic because I did, like, my first year of acting class and my first year of movement class. Yeah, I was going to say, were you doing like rolling around in, you know, black sweatpants, barefoot, crying on the floor, all that beautiful work? Oh, yes. I mean, it was deep. It was really, really, really deep. Profoundly moving at nine o'clock in the morning and, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sharing your private moment with the room. Yeah. I mean, it was very, very good stuff. <laughs> um so yeah, that that happened, and 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 Brandeis was was fun. I mean, it, there was a lot of academics. So like you know, we 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 literally went through bracket for two years from beginning to end. That whole theater history book, and you had to take these academic classes like theater structure and theory and you know, the history, learn about Frostbita, the theater-making nun, and, and Gesamtkunstwerk, and the Wagnerian theory of total theater. And, like, it was, you were doing all of that stuff, but it wasn't a BFA, it wasn't a, mm. it wasn't a conservatory program, so you still had to take all of these, like, which, looking back, was kind of helpful and, mm. and fun, you know, um, to be able to have that basis of, oh, okay, so plays have a structure and and this is this kind of plot and this is an invasion plot and this is a ritual and this you know um so yeah it was it was good it was it was a good time and then from brandeis by my by my senior year i had like done all of the acting classes all of the whole requirement that you could do in the third department and they had a new acting teacher come this woman named janet morrison and i applied to do an independent study with her and i and it was the first time that i got to have like one-on-one uh one-on-one acting class and i think we spent the whole year on belize in angels in america and we just looked at the text and talked about the text and I would bring in a friend and we would do the scenes and it was that was that was kind of incredible and so also at this time by this time I had gotten a car in Boston in the Boston area and I started to audition for shows all around Boston. So I was doing shows at like Speakeasy Stage and all over the place. I was auditioning for for stuff in Boston. Commonwealth Shakespeare I did stuff at. And I had auditioned uh, for this show at ART. And um, I graduated like that Sunday and that Tuesday I was in rehearsal for this musical at ART. and. Um, and that started a whole nother mm. kind of journey that, that took me to UCSD, which was amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, what you're hitting all my bullets. I'm so happy. This is exactly like where <laughs> I wanted to go. I mean, what ultimately like led you there? Were you just sort of like, I need this additional performance work or? Well, so, so, I'll talk a little bit about like, so at the time at ART, ART ART had this company of actors and um, every year they would like bring in like new 
actors for like a year or two years, but their core, <sighs> um, there was a man there named Tommy Dara, um, who was probably the finest actor I have ever known and ever seen in my life. I adore this man and I adore this talent and all through Brandeis I would get to go and see stuff at ART and you would just like watch him and he was marvelous. And he happened to be in this musical and he was so incredibly kind to me and so, and became just the, a dear friend to me. Um, and at the time that we were doing um, the show, Andre Belgrader was the director, and Andre Belgrader was also uh, a directing teacher at UCSD. And he had brought with him this woman, Mo Hanlon, as his assistant director. And she was a current student at UCSD. And in the company at ART that year, I think there were like three or four people who had just graduated from UCSD who were in the company for the year. So Franny Torres, Scott Ripley, Adrian Kostansky, they had just like graduated from UCSD and, um, and they were there and they were marvelous. They were just like incredible, bold, just rambunctious and fun and, and I loved them. And then my friend Katie, who I'd gone to Brandeis with, she went to, to UCSD that year. And she kept talking about this program and how incredible it was. And she was just loving being out in San Diego. And so it was like these two worlds were colliding and, and, I, and I spoke to them about it. And they were like, oh yeah, you should go. It's, gonna, that's, it's a great program, absolutely go. And this lovely man, Tommy Dara, he was like, well, if you wanna do that, I'll help you with your auditions and all of that. And he took the time and Tommy died. Um, two or three years ago. And so talking about him makes me a little sad because he was, he was so dear to me and so incredibly talented and um, so kind to me. But he, he prepped me for my auditions and, 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 um, and, I, and I went to New York to do the UCSD audition. I'll never forget it. I walked, <laughs> I walked in and Walt Jones was the head of the department at that time. And I walked in and he went, well, I've heard a lot about you from a lot of people. <laughs> and I was like, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? I don't know. Um, and I did my audition and I got, I got a call back. And so I came back that afternoon. And this was a weird thing. But um, the five men who were in the waiting room ended up being the five men in the class. And it was me, Christopher, Chris Butler, um, Dave Kopchinski, Sam Breslin Wright. Um, we were all in that waiting room to go in and all of us went in one right after the other and all of us got accepted on the spot. And, um, and we were all part of the, the class and, but all, 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 five of us, all, all four of us were, were in the waiting room together. Um, so it's kind of wild that that happened that way. I found that in my, my training, or I've heard from other people that there, there were moments that something opened up in you, or there's something where something kind of lit a spark in you. And I'm wondering if there was any instance like that for you. I mean, yeah, absolutely. There were, there were, 
there were several moments like that. There were several aha moments. There, there was a, there was a class that I had at Brandeis. It was a movement class. And to this day, I kind of use this woman, Sarah Hickler, and she taught this, um, she did contact improv, and she taught all of these different theories of movement. But one of the things that she did was this thing called uh, natural phenomena. And it was, um, it was like this way of connecting your physicality to breath. And it was this way of, of, uh, of kind of igniting neutral. And so there was like falling leaf and, and, and flowing river and steel and electricity. And she was like, well, if, if, you, if you need to charge something physically, it starts with your breath, right? So like if, if, if you can breathe with the qualities of say electricity, how you vibrate and how you change the air in a space is going to change, right? Just, just by how the quality of, of how you're breathing. Um, before you even start moving, before you even start talking, just like being able to stand there present and breathe in a different way, in an activated way. And like to this day, I use it. To this day, I use it because it's, it's this wonderful way of just kind of like changing the air around you so that was something that that I, I remember to this day and and I remember at UCSD there were so many moments but I think um one of the so at the time there was a, a teacher called Jim Winker who did our second year he was a second year teacher and and when we came in as first years the second years were in his class and they were like oh my god wait till you get Jim and the third years were like oh wait till you get Jim and so everybody was like really excited about getting to to work with with this teacher and the thing that was amazing about working with him it was like one of the first times I had an acting class taught by a working actor. And he had a whole philosophy about actors, you know. So, so I remember the first day of class, he said something. He said, I, I'm going to mess it up, but he said, I'm going to make you a director-proof actor. And we were like, what is, that's a provocative statement. And he's like, what it, it doesn't mean that you don't listen to a director. What it means is I'm going to make you the best asset for any director you work with because they don't have to worry about you. You're going to know how to, how to make a choice. You're going to know how to justify that choice. You know, you're going to know how to build on that choice. And it was the first time that acting classes that I had up until that point were taught by directors and they would go, I think it's this. And what I learned how to do was to interpret that direction and do it, right? But this acting class was the first time where we would look at text and then he would go, well, what do you want to do? And, and you would talk about it, you know, well, I think it's this and he's like, all right, well, try it. How are you going to support that? How are you going to make that more full and rich? How, how are you going to activate that? You know? And so it was a wonderful, just different lens to approach acting from. What do you want to do? You know, to, to give yourself agency as an actor to 
I'm going to make a bold choice. I'm going to, you know, and, and throughout my career, it really has been helpful because I, there have been so many shows where I've almost like staged myself, mm. <laughs> you know, I would just like go, well, I'm going to exit stage right uh-huh. <laughs> because I've seen it's the also model. interesting. I, I often need to rehear that. I find I get in my own way sometimes too. I'm such a product of sometimes wanting to be told what to do that I have to give myself the agency to trust my instinct. So I think that's an important reminder. Yeah, because I mean, the the ultimate thing is like, if it's something that is wrong, the director will go, hey, let's exit stage left, right? Or turn that down. But I think it's important for you to bring something to the table that the director can then go, okay, you got this. And, 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 and the more, the bigger venues and the bigger shows that I've done, I have become very aware of the job that the, the director is doing, right? They're looking at a whole forest of trees. And um, I don't want to be that tree in the forest that is like, water me, trim me, when I can like water and trim myself, right? Like, if the director is looking at where is this trap going to open and I'm kind of like being too needy or whatever, it, 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 just, it just makes the process a, a, a lot slower and longer. And ultimately, if I have a question, I ask the question, right? Or ultimately, if I get a direction, I take the direction. But if I can do it, and if I can make the bold choice and do it, make the choice, do the choice, the director is going to go, let me bring you back or go further. You know what I mean? But I, I I try to give them something to work with. Absolutely. That's amazing. What, um, would you talk a little bit about what the La Jolla Playhouse uh, residency was? Ah, yeah. So the residency, so UCSD, has a residency program with La Jolla Playhouse. So if, if have you ever worked at the Playhouse? No, but no. I imagine that's an invaluable resource. Yeah, it was amazing. So the, 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 what a lot of people don't know is that La Jolla Playhouse is a professional theater in residence at UCSD. So the, the, the spaces and the theaters that, that La Jolla Playhouse uses are, are actually on UCSD and part of UCSD campus. And then, and, and the La Jolla Playhouse season, it, it might have changed by now, but it really is kind of like an extended summer season. So it like goes like maybe April or May to like September. Mm. And so after that season has happened, the, the same spaces that are the La Jolla Playhouse spaces is, is where UCSD students do their shows. So the UCSD directors and playwrights and actors are using those theaters and using those shops to build their shows and and write and direct and everything in those spaces so you actually have the benefit of like incredible facilities for the three years that you're there the playhouse um the residency was incredible um the end of your second year you were guaranteed to be placed in a La Jolla Playhouse show, and you were guaranteed one line. (laughs) Um, But the involvement with 
with La Jolla Playhouse was through was throughout because there were there was like a reading series I remember like in my first year that we participated in there were always these like play development things that were happening at the La Jolla Playhouse that were separate from UCSD. So all of these professional playwrights would come for like a two weeks or something. And they would bring in all of these incredible actors from LA and from New York. And we would get to like work with them just like reading these scripts and, you know, like you were being directed by Michael Greif and Michael Greif was the artistic director at the time. And I ended up doing like, three workshops, two or three workshops with Michael Greif. And then he cast me in Dog Eaters at the Playhouse for my residency year. And he gave me a nice little part. I had more than one line. I had like scenes. I had, I played scenes with Alec Mappa and Sandra Oh was in the show. And um, it was incredible. Um, it was a Jessica Hagedorn play called Dog Eaters. And so to be able to have that also as, as, as a credit on your resume was like, whoa, you know, it was really kind of great. Of course. Yeah. Those kind of programs, they're so exciting to me. I think that's a huge benefit of why you would go to a graduate program as well. But um, obviously in terms of how they prepare you and, and, and everything like that when you graduate, yeah, I wonder if you could speak a little bit about sort of how you advocated for yourself and you mentioned in, in an email correspondence back and forth, someone, the idea of champions in your life or somebody who has built you up. And I wonder if you want to speak about it. Well, I will. Was this about George? Was it, was it George Ferenc? Yes. Yeah. I love him. Um, George Ferenc uh, is, was um, one of the associate directors at La Mama for many, 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 many years. And, and, and I love that man. Love him, love him, love him. Um, I just spoke to him yesterday, actually. Um, so it will start, this story starts this way. <laughs> um, I had probably one of the most disastrous showcase seasons known to man. And at the time, um, how it worked was everyone would bring their stack of headshots and put them outside on a table. And the agents who wanted your, your thing would grab that headshot. And, and literally, I did the New York and the LA and I took home my whole stack, my whole stack of headshots and resumes. It was mortifying right. and you know I was my year at UCSD I, I was with like Quincy Tyler Bernstein and Mary Catherine <laughs> Garrison and Sam Breslin right I mean like heavy fucking hitters right Chris Butler Melody Butu I mean these these people like no headshots left in their pile and like I'm just going to take my whole pile of headshots and go over here it was a disaster so I walked out of there with like no representation it was a disaster and um I just picked really bad material and I, it it was it was not good um so I came to New York and it was just fucking hard it was just hard and I had I had freelanced with this one agency and like nothing was happening and and then I, um, a friend of mine started working for another agency and she got me an interview in 
Uh, they decided they were going to freelance with me. They got me my first big regional gig at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park, which turned me equity, and which was great. And um, then I came back to the city, and I ended up doing this wonderful um, piece with Nalaja Sun, um, this actress Nalaja Sun, who you should interview. She's incredible. Um, and um, she did a show called No Child Left Behind and Pike Street. She, she's incredible. You need to interview her. Nalaja's up. And, um, and we were killing it. And so I harassed this agent to come and see it because I was like, you, got, you have to see me in this thing, right? And they didn't come to Cincinnati because I was just a freelance client. And the guy came and um, we went out for a drink after and he was like, oh, that was incredible. And you're so incredibly talented and it's wonderful. And, and, and I can see potential and da, da, da. And I was like so excited and thrilled. And then he looked at me and said, so when are you going to blow me? And it was like, no. The whole world stopped. And it was the first time that like, this young, eager actor just, it, it like was a huge gut punch. It just, it just killed my whole spirit. And I remember I kind of laughed it off and I like got him out of there and got him into a cab and, and just like, I just was astounded. I couldn't believe it. And sure as shit, never heard from that agent again. Never heard from him again. No more auditions. That was it. And it was, you know, I was young at the time. I mean, I think if it, if that had happened now, it'd have been like, "Fuck you," and just gone and gotten another agent. But like at the time, it really was so devastating that I was like, "I don't, I don't think I want to do this anymore." Oh and along comes George Ferentz. Um, so my friend Jason Howard from Brandeis had given George my number, and at the time he was doing this reading series at, at La Mama, and he called me in an audition for him, and he's like, yeah, you got skills, kid. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks. And um, he cast me in this reading, and then he kept calling. He just kept calling. And so for 15 years, he kept calling. And I, I would go and, you know, at, it, 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 it became doing stuff with him fed my soul. And then from there, I found this other little place called Manhattan Theater Source, where I met uh, Doug Silver and Andrew Frank and were, were working on musicals at their little theater. And it was small, independent theater, downtown, kind of off the grid, but it felt safe, right? Like it didn't feel, it didn't feel dangerous. Mm. And I ended up getting my corporate job at the time, but um, George kept calling and um, he really believed in my talent. And, I, and, and he would call and he'd say things like, hey, you think you can be a superhero spy? I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, you can do anything. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And, and then I'd go do this reading, I'd be a superhero spy, you know? And then he'd go, 
can you be this? Can you be that? And he just kept saying, you can do anything. You can do anything. And um, he just, he just, he kept me involved and he, and he loved my talent and he loved having me in the room and he loved how I worked. And, um, and, and because of him, I met this woman, Jenny Vath, and she and I ended up doing like 50, 60 plus readings with him. And she kind of became like, for lack of a better word, like, you know, a company of actors. Jenny and I can go on stage and, and, and we have this absolute trust with one another that we like breathe at the same time. And like, I can feel when she's about to zing and I zag. And like, it's, it's, it's this wonderful simpatico that the two of us have um, on a stage and a shorthand that's been developed from 15 years of doing readings. And we did the Tooth of Crime um, at La Mama together. And then we did um, all of these other little plays and readings and, and, and down at Theater for the New City. And he just kept me involved. He just kept me involved. And, um, and, and I'm always ever grateful for him because, um, yeah, I don't know that I would have, would have stayed in the business. I, I, I ended up having this corporate career and I ended up being really good at it. And um, I was a uh, um, fancy event planner working for an oil and energy company and doing fancy hotels and making a lot of money. And, um, and I almost kind of went that path, you know, I almost went that way. And, um, and then we all got laid off. <laughs> it was like the universe was like, kid, no, no. This, is, this is not it. It's also so interesting to me. I, I mean, I have a lot of conversations with people, especially right now, about this idea of, you know, I don't want to like leave the business. I don't want to give up. I don't want to, and I don't, I don't ever think of it in that way because I think it's sort of like riding a bike or I think it's this kind of thing. Like you're a little rusty when you get back on it after some time off, but I don't think that it, it ever leaves your blood. It's part of who you are. And, and, and I have so many people too who, subscribe to that adage of like if you can see yourself doing something else you should maybe go do it and I don't know that I always believe that because I find that actors are so multi-talented obviously you were incredibly gifted at in the corporate world as well I feel like actors can be so good at so many different things it's a tough thing I mean I will say this James I think it's you know like you can be talented the business doesn't have to care mm. You know what I mean? Like the business, you can be as talented as all get out. The business does not have to care. The business of show is a business of show. And I think for me, part of the, the deal was I, I knew I had talent. I, I believed I had talent, but I just didn't know or believe that what I was or what I had was anything that the industry wanted. You know what I mean? So I was seeing things and, and seeing shows and I was like, nothing looks like me. Or I was trying to bend myself into something to fit this thing. And it just made me so unhappy and so miserable that like, you know, the times when I would like, all right, I'm going to go uptown to the Ripley Greer and do this audition for this thing. And I'd be like, this, 
this just doesn't this just doesn't feel like it that these new plays downtown and working with George has like I'm gonna go downtown like this feeds my soul this gives me anxiety this makes me feel less than this makes me feel terrible um and and the business I think for a long time didn't want what I was throwing down right like and they didn't have to the business doesn't have to care mm -hmm. there are many many talented people and and whether or not you get the opportunity or, or the shot it's it's not a matter of if you're talented or not is this what the business is doing right now are you going to get a showcase to be able to like really show your talents at this point in time that people go oh okay we'll think outside of the box uh, around this guy sometimes that doesn't happen you know so i was saying like when strange loop came up that like sometimes you just have to time takes time and you just have to wait the bastards out almost until trends and tastes and whatever change and they're ready for you you know what i mean and i don't know if i was always willing to wait for it because i wanted to have a life you know and you can only do so many showcase contracts and like work an eight hour day and then go rehearse till 11 o'clock at night before you're like this is this is soul crushing you know so for me i i was ready to leave the the, the business there was there were several times because it was just it hurt too much it was too painful and if i had a skill set that was at, at least gonna allow me to like pay my bills and get some health insurance, I was gonna look to that, you know what I mean? I remember, I remember um, one of the first iterations of, of Strange Loop um, was directed by Maria Goyanes, who was now the artistic director at Willie Mammoth, but she was, she was working at the public at the time and we were doing a workshop of it at Playwrights Realm. And I took to Maria, I, I, I really, there was something about her I, I, I really liked. And I thought she was someone that I could talk to. And so I, I, had, I, I scheduled a meeting with her to talk about what are some of the jobs I could do behind the scenes or other than acting. And she took that meeting with me and she said, well, there's, you know, this kind of development is over here and I can put you in touch with people there. And, there's someone at Joe's Pub that I can talk to maybe about coordination and da 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 da. And she did. She laid it all out. And at the end of that meeting, she went, or maybe just wait. Maybe just wait. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and wow. like she got me to wait for a couple, a, a couple years. Yeah, she did. She got me to like hold out in the business for a little while longer because like she was like hey if you wanna here are all of these options but maybe just wait because what i want to see is you on the stage mm. and then um, i was like uh, okay and then you know george would call again and say hey come do this little play or come do this thing and and i remember the first corporate job ended got laid off and then I got another corporate job. And this corporate job, I was also very good at. And I loved it. But what was interesting about this corporate job, um, it was a training company 
that use the principles of the performing arts to coach like corporate people. And in the middle of their office was a little black box theater. And um, there were all of these rooms that were like big, large rehearsal rooms. And so at that job, I ended up starting to make theater with people. And I started to perform, even though it was a corporate job, there was a black box with a, a, a baby grand piano in the middle and I would, I would do a cabaret every once in a while. And it was like, okay, all right, I can, I can do this. Mm. And, um, and then I was like, you know what? I think I'm done with acting, right? I will always have music in my life. I will always have some kind of art in my life. Michael at the time would call me and go, hey, come do this thing at Ars Nova. Come do this thing at Joe's Pub. And I would go and I'd do the thing at Joe's Pub. And other composers would call. And I'm like, fine. If they call, I'll go do it. But in terms of like trying to do, I'm going to go do this job. And this company was really invested in like developing me to, to, to work with them. And, um, and then I was very clear in my heart, I'm going to leave. And I, and, and I prayed on it and I thought about it for a while. And I, I, I told my friend Tom, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to leave. And he's like, hey, that's fine. If you need to leave, that's fine. You can do that. And literally two days later, I got a call from Katya, who was at McCorkle at the time. Yes. Um, and, sa- and she said, do you know how to do a Jamaican accent? And I was like, you know, I happen to know how to do it. I hadn't auditioned for them in like 10, 15 years. And, um, and at the time I ended up getting this Bob Marley musical at, at center stage in Baltimore. And it was the biggest show I'd done up till that time. And, and then I, you know, I kept throwing things in the way of it, I remember going and telling the, the people that I worked with, hey, I got this thing, but I can understand if you don't want me to go because it's out of town. And the end of that workday, the CEO came to my desk and was like, well, you can work remotely, can't you? <laughs> I was like, yeah. And he's like, yeah, well, we'll just reduce your hours, go. <laughs> and so I went and I did this show. And then when I came back, I was like, oh. I can't do Excel spreadsheets anymore. I just, wow. I can't. Wow. I can't. Yeah. So was that sort of, for you, a cementing moment in like, I'm going to now? It was. It was, it was a turning point moment in, in terms of like, okay, we're going to pursue this. We're going to pursue this. And so I came, came back and I started to do, you know, I wasn't like doing a lot of like big time auditioning still. I was still doing a lot of independent theater and I was doing like, I was the king of the showcase. If there was a 50 seat theater or a 25 seat theater below 14th street, I played it to a claim, played it to a claim. I slayed them in the aisle dozens at a time. And, uh, um, and, um, and still had this corporate job and, and, oh, did I put my, my friend Geraldine, I'm gonna talk about Geraldine because um, she kicked my ass in the most beautiful way. So I was doing all of these showcases and, and I was doing a dreadful show. 
a dreadful show. And, and, and I remember I had this like attitude and thing like you would just, well, do the show because you should be grateful for the show. Just be grateful you have some work. And, and, and now I revile that attitude because so many actors I know end up doing things that they resent or doing things that cause them harm in so many ways because people tell them, well, it's a job, just take the job, right? Like not every job is for you and not every job you should take. Um, and I was doing another god-awful showcase below 14th Street, and it was an awful show, and the director went nuts, and it was, it was one of the worst experiences I'd had. And I was like, oh my God, what is this bananas? And my friend Geraldine came to see it, and we went to a diner after, and she looked at me and she said, you know, you were the best thing in that show. And I went, well, thank you, Geraldine. And she went, that's not a compliment. Mm. And I went, oh boy, she's about to read me the riot act. And she did. She said, you cannot grow unless you are in rooms with people who are better than you. And unless you are in rooms with people who scare the shit out of you. You can do this career forever. You can do this career till the cows come home, but it is never going to serve you and you're never going to grow this career until you get into rooms that absolutely terrify you and absolutely with people who are better than you. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. Yeah. Like, she just like, she totally like punched me in my face with the most like courageous love ever. She was like, are, like, are you gonna step into it or are you mm -hmm. not gonna step into it, right? And so that was the moment when I was like, okay, I'm not going to do any more showcases. I'm just not gonna do any more. I've done them enough. I've, I've got 15, 16, 17 years of showcases under my belt. Mm. I, don't need to, I don't need to do that anymore. And, um, and I started to pursue other things. And, and, and by that time, um, Katya was like calling me in for stuff. And I learned a lesson um, or a lesson was reminded to me, which is don't be a dick, just be decent, right? So years ago, I had worked for this uh, Manhattan theater source. And there was a woman who worked for another theater company within Manhattan Theater Source. I'd never worked for her, but she'd seen my work at, at um, Manhattan Theater Source. And we'd always been very nice to one another. And I would go see their shows. They would come see my shows. And so all of these years later, out of the blue, I get a call from um, Telsey. And they were looking to cast... Otho for the workshop of Beetlejuice. And um, I was like, okay. And I went in and I booked the thing. And I was like, how the, like, how the fuck did they hear about me? Like, yeah. I, it, it just didn't make any sense. And, and later on, the two writers came up to me and they said, hey, this woman was, you know, we put out this thing saying, hey, we're looking for an Otho. And she was the one who recommended you. And I hadn't, like, I literally hadn't seen her in, like, years. Um, 
and that's how I booked that gig. And that was one of those rooms where I was in a room with people who were better than me and with people who terrified me. And boy, did I learn a lot being in that room. Yeah, Leslie cool. Kritzer is a force of fucking nature. Alex Brightman is fearless. Um, Alex Timbers, he knows what he wants. And, and he terrified me in the most wonderful way. Like he would go, there was a moment where he's like, I want you to stand right here. And, and I remember I blinked and he was like, don't blink. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you see everything, Alex Timbers. Like it was nuts. He saw everything. I was like, how did, really? So, but that was a wonderful room to be in. And, and I did the work that I usually do. I made choices and he would bring me back or he'd go, go further with that. And, and working with Leslie and, and, um, and, and Alex and all of really brilliantly talented musical theater room. Um, and from it, I learned a big lesson that I had to learn in order to do Strangely. Um, I would do all of the work in rehearsal and do it and execute it well. And the two presentations that we had, I fucked up the song. Here I was like doing this showcase and we were in front of like all of the Broadway, you know, Jude Jameson and the Nederlanders and all of them are like Schubert organization. They're all there. And I fucked up the song both times. And I, and I, and I couldn't believe that I did that. I couldn't believe that I like whizzed the ball, but I would do this thing where I would go, all right, God, it's, I leave it in your hands now. I've, I've done my work. I leave it to you to, to, to help me cross the finish line. And, and whizzing that thing bugged me. It just bugged me because I was like, I did that work. I did all of that work. And in the rehearsal, that work was good. And why, why wasn't I able to like execute at the, at the critical moment? And I kept praying about it and I kept meditating about it. And, and, and I swear to God, one day, loud and clear in my head, I heard something say, I don't sing stupid. <laughs> and it was like, God went, that is your job. You wanted me to sing? Like at the last moment, you did all of the work. It's your job to complete the work, right? Like, why are you throwing it up to me at the last minute? Like, I gave you this talent. I gave you this skill set. I gave you the inspiration to do the thing. Do the thing. It's your job to do. It's yours. It's not mine to do. And it was a wonderful kind of like remembering or whatever of take ownership of your work, right? Mm -hmm. So when I walked into the room for Strange Loop, I was like, I'm going bold. I'm going to know what I need to do. And every night I executed it. Every night I was like, I know what my step A to B to C to D. And I'm not going to leave it to anybody else but for me to do, right? The 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 universe, God, whatever you want to call it, gave me the skill set, the mind, the energy to do it. It's mine to do. And I needed to learn that before I did Strange Loop. Well, I want to I want to go there because I was in the first row at Playwrights 
last year, around this time. And um, I was so, I think I wrote this to you in your email, but I was, I was so moved by your performance. Like I can so clearly see you in that pink outfit. And sort of like this, this physical gesture of, of watching Usher and this sort of how moving it was just even just to watch you listen and and what what was going on through you it was so powerful and I just adored your work and I adored the show and, and all those things and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the rehearsal process for that piece I mean it's incredibly ensemble driven and you all had so much to do in that play and I'm wondering if you could talk about how rehearsals were structured I mean, I th one of the great things about that process is we had spent so many years workshopping it. So, so the iteration that you saw was, of course, brilliant Stephen Brackett, right? And we had the benefit of um, working at Musical Theatre Factory for five, six years. So we were, we were at Musical Theatre Factory when it was in the gay porn studio. Do you know this story? I don't know that, but I know that it was a, yeah. <laughs> so Musical Theatre Factory started in, in a gay porn factory, a, a gay porn studio in Midtown Manhattan. Did you know that there's a gay porn studio above the old drama bookshop in Midtown? There is. <laughs> wow. And we, that's where Musical Theatre Factory started. So we would climb up these four flights of steps and, and, and all of that. We would rehearse the show there and it became this wonderful incubator for us to just like try things and throw things out and like fail and da 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 da. And um, Jason Vesey, L. Morgan Lee, um, James Jackson, Larry Owens, me, um, were, were all in that process from that time and then throughout the years like Elijah Caldwell and Jamal Clark Turpin and other people came in and out um but that kind of core group of us we were were there from the beginning of musical theater factory days and like working on the show and working on the show and and helping it to go and and going through the whole factory process at Musical Theatre Factory from like the 15 minute version to just the first act to the whole reading of the thing. Another like two week workshop. Like, so we had like all of this time to really just kind of like dive in and like pick it apart and go, well, what is this and what is that? So by the time we got into rehearsal, and then even when we were on the, the, the traje trajectory that we were, okay, we're going to Playwrights Horizons, then Playwrights gave us like a book workshop and then they gave us like another two week reading workshop. And I think we had even like another little thing in there somewhere. Um, and so, and page 73 also like gave us like, they were like, we're gonna fund this workshop. And so we had like a dance workshop and we had a movement, we had a book workshop and we, so we had like, all of this time to just sit with it and kind of like dream and and go well what is this and what is this and and even in the in the actual rehearsal process at playwrights we just had so many conversations you know because the show brings up so much so just like having an hour-long conversation about our mothers and what what our mothers represented and 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 what that needed to be and 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 the thing that was always 
clear for us, especially when it came to, to mom and dad, was that all of, all of this stuff came out of absolute love, right? Like, they do damaging things, but it all comes from this place of absolute adoration and love for their kid. And so that, that nuance and that tension of that love and that damage that was happening was always something that we wanted to jump into. And, 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 and even, you know, when we got to very uncomfortable comfortable things in the show, like the Inward Daddy sequence, there were lots of conversations about times when all of us at some point in time did something that we didn't want to do or we gave ourselves away in some way and um and and that was painful and that was but it was beautiful to kind of like release any shame or anything around that right and so that that whole process was very healing and and i kept, it it always felt to me in that rehearsal room that this was a show that could save some little gay boy's life. You know what I mean? Like they were going to, there was going to be recognition from somebody um, that would save their life. And, and, and I always think about this one night when I stepped out of the theater and there was this, this thin, wayfish, little curly-haired white boy and he was just leaned up against the side of Playwrights Horizons, weeping, just weeping. And I, and I went up to him, I'm like, are you all right? And he was like, I have never felt more seen. And that was when I was like, oh shit, this, is, this, is, this show is hitting on a much more universal level than just black queer, you know? And, the one performance I, I know you're asking about like the rehearsal room and I'm gone off into no, something please, else. But, please. but there was this one night when we had like a you know the subscriber nights at Playwrights Horizons. They're very quiet and they 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 want to be entertained. And we had this one subscriber audience and we were like, Ooh Lord, it is quiet in here today. They're not loving this. And the show ended and we got a standing ovation and there was this old white man in the middle of the front row and he just kept shouting at us thank you thank you and it was astounding and we were like wait a minute something this is hitting on a whole nother on a whole nother level so i'm glad like in the rehearsal process we took the time to really talk about things and like dive into things and like go, oof, this is too much. And then Stephen would go, all right, well, let's, let's just tiptoe in. Let's just tiptoe in. It's gonna be uncomfortable, but let's, let's, let's go and see how we get out on the other side and how we can like, what, what reveals itself on the other side. So it became so cathartic. And there were so many, nights where you know all of us would just like by the end of it be sobbing because it was like oh yeah yeah i just needed to hear that again or i needed to go through that again to kind of like release whatever it was 
you talked a little bit about the sort of uncomfortable things that you guys worked on. And, and it, again, in, in our correspondence, you had mentioned a, a, a conversation you had very recently with director Stephen Brackett in regards to a yeah. moment that you wrangled with. And um, I would love to hear about that. Well, so so the the character of mom, all of the thoughts at some point in time play mom, all of the thoughts at some point in time play dad. Um, James Jackson has a, 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 a nicely fully realized version of mom. But then when I took mom over at the last like third of the play, it's the most fully realized version of mom that you see in the play. And we had, we had, had all of these discussions in the room about, well, what is that moment going to look like? What is that going to be? How are we going to, how is that going to be represented? And we were going into, so the whole dialogue of the show changed, right? Like there was this physical dialogue that we had with the audience with these walls and these portals. And by the time mom comes into being, the walls kind of split, the walls split at Inward Daddy. So you know that there's this like schism in his mind, something violent, something uncomfortable has happened and the walls split and then after that the walls kind of go away to the side and we were in what this physical world that we call the void and that was where he did boundaries and and then mom comes in as a as the most like realized version in this like weird void like world that was created and then after that a big fuller reveal happens where like the actual world of the play the real reality of the world of the play kind of like comes in and then that's fractured again and you know it so it was kind of an incredible gotcha moment um a series of gotcha moments and 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 as michael says the, the play is booby trapped so like the the whole game we we're playing with the audience the whole time was like we set something up and then we pull the rag out out from under you, right? And after the traumatic event of Inward Daddy, you think he's gonna have this wonderful, kind, wonderful moment with mom. And then the rug gets pulled out from under you again and we go into this whole other thing. So there were all of these discussions about like, well, what does mom look like, right? Like, how are we representing this moment? How are we doing this thing? And it wasn't until very late in the process that they came to the idea of like putting me in that pink suit and, and giving me this full wig. And, and I was terrified about it because I had done all of this work on mom up until that point in time. And I remember going into that fitting and just going, this feels not right. This just doesn't feel right at all. And I remember, God bless Montana, um, he, he wanted to put me in high heels. And I fought him. I was like, no, I can't. Because I'd been rehearsing the show in these boots. And like I felt grounded and I, and I knew what the, the ground felt underneath me like, was like in these boots. And I was like, if you, if you, if you change my whole physical stance, I, like I feel like you're, it's already tenuous, please, please don't. So, so walk up that spiral staircase. Walk up that spiral staircase, but like, 
just like the physicality that mm-hmm. I had like kind of generated and like found felt so grounded and right. And I was like, it's too late in the game for me to do, like had I been working with high heel shoes for that moment for a while, that would have been a different thing. Um, and so he's like, fine, all right, well, so if you notice, I'm wearing a full pink suit, but I'm still wearing combat boots, mm. which is kind of like great, right? Like, because then mom and Usher go to war. Right. Like they go to, they battle. Um, but I remember that first, that first night putting on that, that costume and putting on that wig. And I, and I, and I went out there and I did the thing and, and I was like on the verge of tears at the end of the thing because it just felt, it felt so naked and so exposed and so and, and uncomfortable. I just, and so I was sure that they were going to cut it. And Stephen came down to the green room after and I was like, okay, great. So we're going to cut this, right? And he was like, what are you talking about? It was absolutely perfect. And I was like, oh my God, Stephen is going to make me wear this dress. And Stephen is going to, gonna make me wear this wig and i remember the first preview my brother-in-law bought bought tickets for the first preview of the show my best friend bought tickets to the first preview they thought that it was opening night they were like we're coming to your opening and i was like oh i don't i don't think so and they were like yeah we're gonna come to february and i was like oh the first preview (laughs) great (laughs) and um my mom was gonna be there and i was like oh my god my mom is gonna see me in this dress and and that was like, you know, it was a little bit of my own internalized homophobia and my fear about, of judgment and shame. And like, all of that came up, all of that came up. And so it was really very uncomfortable um, doing it. And that, that first night he said, hey, when you're coming off the stage, take the wig off. As you're walking off the stage, just rip the wig off. And um. And at the time, the whole sequence, that whole sequence went through a whole big, massive change throughout the whole preview process. Um, there was a Nala song, like there, there was a, the, his little baby niece had a song and she came on with little Afro puffs and it was like a whole thing. It was so cute. John Michael Laws played that and that got cut. Um, but I remember going out there and like seeing my sister kind of go and seeing like other audience members kind of go. And I was like, Oh my God, this is, this is, this is, I don't know what this is. And then when I took that wig off as I was leaving, something just felt like, Oh wait, Oh, this is right. Mm -hmm. This is, there's, there's a there, there, there's something here with, with this and I don't know what it is and so then that whole sequence of the play was the thing that we like workshopped constantly throughout the throughout the preview period until we like refined and got it right and got it right and got it right um and I think I think we landed on something pretty powerful by the time we we got to the to opening night I would I would agree (laughs) (laughs) I would very much agree with that um I don't know I mean I actually I don't know if you would be but would you consider reading a piece of text from a strange loop you're so needy needy. (laughs) 
everything. My God. Why are you like this, James? All right, let me find it. Um, to be fair, everyone listening, he had already asked if I would do <laughs> would do this, and um, and in particular, it's the it's the mom's monologue in in periodically. Um, you don't get the full version of it on the recording, so okay. This is the day. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. That the Lord has made. He has a milestone in my baby's life. You turn 26 on the 26th, and this will never happen again. So enjoy your day. You were born at 8.31 this morning, my love, and mom loves you. You turn 26 on the 26th. I can't tell you nothing. Well, may you have a good day. I know it's early, and I hope I'm the first one to call you, but even if I'm not, with the exception of our dear Heavenly Father, I'm the one that loves you the most. <laughs> well, me and your dad. Okay, my love. Oh, I know, I know, I'm getting all sentimental and mush, but we'd be thinking about you, and we'd be praying about you, because I get worried. With my baby up there in New York, with folks living any which away, like them folks on entertainment tonight. Do you watch entertainment tonight. I sure hope you don't, with different people sitting up there talking about gay this and gay that and Botox and abortion. But I know I don't have to worry about my baby being Botox and aborted because my baby was raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord and the Proverbs, which says, raise up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it. And then we go into the second verse of the song. <laughs> Honestly, this whole thing of, of asking actors to generously share bits from shows is it's so moving. I, I really can't tell you. Uh, thank you so much for doing that, truly. <laughs> it's it was so it's so special in this little Zoom window, but I, I really appreciate it and I just love that whole song so much. And that song was also another reason why I knew I had to get in touch with you because I want to just talk about Woolly Mammoth for a second because I was watching their virtual progressive um, uh -huh. uh, yeah. extravaganza and I, um, I had done a play there two years ago and I, I adore Woolly Mammoth. I think it's an unbelievable place to put on a play and, and I know you guys are now slated to do Strange Loop there in the summer of 2021. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just talk about what you were most excited about getting the chance to chew on again. You know, um, I, I, I'm most excited, I think, to dig back into that final third of the play because I don't know if, I, I know for a fact that Michael, there were things that he wanted to try that he just didn't get the chance to try. And there were things that, that they wanted to explore that they weren't able to explore. And, um, and there's so much uh, in that relationship, especially at the end of that play. Um, I think part of the, 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 ex the thing that I'm looking forward to is the challenge of generating that kind of energy again right because like it's um 
mom is no joke, especially at the end of at, at the end of that play. And it was one of these things of like being so present and so aware and so just investigating him constantly and like listening that I, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how I create that again a year or so later. Like how, how do I do that? Mm. And like, I was listening to like, um, it's just God's punishment the other day. And I was like, how in the hell did we do that eight times a week? Like we are screaming for the gods yeah. and like the whole energy of that whole last third of the play is, um, is a whirlwind. And, you know, mm -hmm. like it's, it's kind of light and fun until about inward daddy. And then all of a sudden the brakes come off of the whole show and it becomes dangerous and, and wonderfully scary. And, and, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to dive back into that and, um, just see what that looks like a year or whatever yeah. after and how how do I generate that again authentically and and I'm 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 eager to see what kind of changes are going to you know that whole sequence um there was a collaborator that didn't get to join us um Darius Smith because he died from he died uh, because of guilt and shame and church rhetoric and, and, and all of that stuff about three or four months before we went into rehearsal. And so when we got to that section in the rehearsal room, it had always been, uh, of course, something that was like operatic and weird and strange, but it held this whole other gravitas after that happened. And Michael, it destroyed Michael. So there were times in that rehearsal room where Michael just would break down and weep. And we were witnessing that. We were wit witnessing this man grieve his friend as we talked about this painful thing that just transpired about three or four months ago because of the thing that we were talking about. And so, I know that Michael wants to, to dig back in whether or not he had the emotional capacity to, to do all of that or the clarity to do all of that at that time with mm -hmm. the Playwrights Horizons world premiere of it all. That might not have been the case because he was also, like, while all of this was going on, he was grieving. Wow. And, um... And so I know that there, there, there are things that he wants to... To look at now. I mean, yeah, it's going to be yeah. about two years since, because yeah, it was yeah, last. Yeah. So it really will be quite a different lens. And you'll also be looking at it through award-winning eyes. Obviously, I mean. the piece itself, but also yourself, uh, standing <laughs> featured actor in a musical. Uh, obviously, congratulations and well-deserved. Um, I feel like I've been keeping you on here for way too long, so I don't want to keep you any longer, but I, I do have to ask you my final question that I ask every guest. All right. Which is, it's a tradition. Uh, if, you would, if you would please uh, send a love note from you to the theater, uh, what keeps you coming back 
and why it continues to ignite your soul. Well, why it continues to ignite my soul is community. Um, it's a community of people that I love. Um, and if I was gonna send a love letter, it's um, just stay safe, be safe, especially it's such a weird time. Um, be safe, I love you. I can't wait to see what you create. I can't wait to see how you thrill us again. I can't wait to see how you make me laugh and how you make me cry. And I can't wait to be able to do that, holding your hands and hugging you all. Um, yeah, I love this community. I do, I love this community. And, um, and I've had many champions. Heather Alicia Sims, I, um, she just came into my head. She's been a champion. When I got that job at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park, she was my co-star. And she's another one who like throughout the years would be like, have you thought about John Andrew? <laughs> I would get random calls for like incredible projects and we're like, how do you hear my name? You're like, oh, Heatherson. <laughs> so I've always had people advocate for me. And it's something that I do now too. I, I try and push and advocate for people that I, I think are talented and, and that are kind mm -hmm. and that are, um, decent and wonderful you know i don't want to put friends in a situation where they're dealing with an asshole so don't be a dick that that's it don't be a dick theater <laughs> no that's not what i want my love letter to theater to be no, your love letter is beautiful <laughs>